So it's my pleasure this morning to introduce our first speaker, uh, Dr. Christine Erlinson, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at University of Colorado at Denver. Uh, Christine is one of our superstars in the AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network and an emerging leader in the study of aging. She has research interests that focus on health and quality of life of older adults aging with HIV, and her current research is investigating the benefits of exercise, the impact of adjuvant therapies such as statins, and the role of body composition on physical function in older adults. She will be discussing assessing frailty in older people with HIV, and I'll turn it over now to Chris to Dr. Erlinson. Thank Thanks, you. Connie. Thank you so much, and thank you for the opportunity to talk today. Um, my disclosures are listed here, and the objectives for today's talk are to be able to, to have you describe the clinical relevance of physical function and frailty, select appropriate tools for physical function and frailty, and then conduct or find resources to be able to conduct these types of assessments in the clinical or the research setting. So to start, I want to ask you to compare these two hypothetical men that are in their 80s. The one on the left uses a walker, has significant comorbidity burden, and lives in an assisted living facility. The man on the right is still working full time, running a busy clinic or a lab, and probably running some marathons. So what is so different between these two men of the same age? These concepts of physical function and frailty can help us to kind of conceptualize some of these differences and think about how our treatment and our care plans might differ. So to take a step back, how do we describe some of these differences? Let's take a look at the World Health Organization Disability Framework. The basis of this model is that there's some sort of impairment in body function, such as arthritis, this leads to a limitation in someone's activities of daily living, such as difficulty rising up from a chair, um, balance impairments, or slow gait speed, and ultimately could lead to disability or a limitation in their ability to participate in the activities they would like to within the community. So this might include using public transportation effectively or being able to work. In contrast, the concept of frailty is similar, um, but quite different in some ways, and it reflects more of a vulnerability that I'll talk about more in the next slide. So someone who's frail has some limitations in their performance. They may have um, slow gait speed, weak grip strength, and other factors that I'll go over in a bit more detail. This frail individual um, starts at a lower level of performance. They encounter a stressor, such as a hospitalization or an illness, have a fairly rapid decline in their function over a short period of time, and then have a slow recovery back, but don't quite reach that level of function where they were prior to the illness or the hospitalization. In contrast, our marathon runner, who might be pre-frail or even robust or non-frail, encounters that same stressor, but starts at a much higher level of performance, has a dip in his function, but is able to bounce back relatively quickly and continues along at that same level of function over time. So these concepts of frailty and physical function performance um, appear to occur both more frequently and probably earlier in individuals with HIV. This figure on the left shows data from the multi-center AIDS cohort study. You can see age along the bottom and the percent of study visits when an individual was diagnosed as frail. Those with HIV are shown in the black, black diamonds and the HIV uninfected controls in the empty squares. 
And you can see that the prevalence of frailty is pretty similar for age less than 40 up to about age 50. And then there's a steady and more rapid increase in the prevalence of frailty in those with HIV compared to those without HIV, really starting to accelerate at about age 50. We see similar findings with usual gait speed shown in the figure on the right, where the men with HIV in the red line have a more rapid decline in their gait speed over time, again, starting to accelerate at about age 50. So how can we incorporate some of these concepts into the clinic or into an observational or interventional study? The first thing, when deciding what test might fit best, we have to determine what is our question? What are we hoping to identify? What are, how are we hoping to intervene? And then we can kind of decide which test might be best. So if we're trying to identify impairments so that patients might be identified for falls prevention programs, referred for physical therapy, or counseled on the importance of exercise, or even referred to exercise programs, Perhaps we're looking for a standardized assessment that we can use across many sites in the setting of a clinical trial. Um, and if so, then one of these objective markers of physical function, such as gait, speed, or chair rise, might be a, be a better test to use. In contrast, if you're looking for a way that you might identify someone who is at high risk and might benefit from a, a geriatric consultation or a multidisciplinary clinic, trying to prioritize care to those at the highest risk, then something like frailty might be about a, a good assessment. Similarly, if you're trying to screen someone for risk before an elective surgery or trying to find a high-risk patient population who maybe doesn't have additional benefit from cancer screenings, then frailty might be an appropriate assessment. Um, in contrast, if you were looking for um, patients that maybe need intensive case management, connection to aging resources, assistance with public transportation and handicap accessible transportation, um, then a measure of disability, such as a, a assessment of activities of daily living, might be a more appropriate choice. The other thing to consider is how and when we might intervene for that individual. So someone with normal aging um, continues along at a fairly high rate of performance, as you can see in this solid black line, until they reach the last um, maybe decade of life and they start to become somewhat frail. In contrast, someone with an accelerated aging process, such as what is proposed to happen with HIV, starts out at that same level of function, but has a more rapid decline in function and then spends a good proportion of their life living with frailty and potentially even disability. Um, while that frail individual has the highest risk for poor outcomes, and we may really be able to improve their quality of life in slow progression to disability with impairments, it's quite difficult to shift someone who's frail back up to this full performance curve. It takes a lot of interventions, um, and it's, it's pretty difficult to reverse frailty, more something to slow and uh, minimize additional stressors that might cause decline. In contrast, if we can identify someone up here who has just minimal decreases in their function, is heading towards that more accelerated aging curve, and we can shift them back up to this full performance curve, then we may have a longer lasting uh, impact on their function over time. So let's talk first about some of the physical function assessments. One of the most commonly used assessments, both in research and in the clinical or the rehabilitation setting, is the short physical performance battery, or the SPPB. This is something that can be done in an older adult population, um, even people that can't balance particularly well or even walk a short distance. Um, it doesn't require a lot of space or equipment to perform this, and it can be fairly well standardized across different sites if it's something that you're looking to compare from one clinic to another or one research site to another. 
It does take about seven to 10 minutes to perform. So it is a little bit of a, a time um, issue if that's a concern in the clinical setting. And many well-functioning older adults uh, may actually have a perfect score on this. So it has a, a ceiling effect of um, obtaining a perfect score and losing some of that distinction at higher, or some of the um, distinguishing factors at a higher uh, level of performance. We can also separate separate out specific um, components of the short physical performance battery to make a very quick assessment, such as just to gate speed or just to chair rise time. Uh, in the clinical setting, a frequently used assessment is the timed up and go or the tug. Um, this is well as or associated um, with increased fall risk, and I'll talk a little bit more about the tug in a few minutes. And then the um, 400 meter walk is a useful tool in a very high functioning patient population uh, where we need a little bit more discrimination across um, high levels of function. So just to go into these in a little bit more detail, this shows the components of the, the SPPB or the short physical performance battery. The first part is a balance test. So the individual stands with their feet side by side for 10 seconds. If they're able to do that successfully, they move on to do a semi-tandem stand with their um, feet slightly apart and then onto the tandem stand for 10 seconds each. If they're able to do each of these components successfully, then they receive four points for this section. Then there's a gate speed test that is a four meter walk. So just a short distance across the room with specific cut points for the time shown on the right of this figure. And then the last part is a chair stand test. So the individual stands up once from the chair. If they're able to do that successfully, then they continue and stand up five times from the chair with their arms over their chest, uh, really testing their lower extremity strength. So I wanted to show a few examples of, um, or a few video snippets of how this test looks. Um, one of the nice things about the short physical performance battery is there's actually extensive resources for how to implement this on the National Institute on Aging website. Uh, they have videos for each per component of it, lots of tip sheets, and then actually a script that's read verbatim when performing it. So we know that this assessment is performed similarly across um, all different sites where it's performed. The script is read. Um, the, the administrator of the test demonstrates the procedure first, and then it's important, particularly for lower functioning patients, that the administrator stands close enough that they can catch them. Um, the other thing about the short physical performance battery is the test gets progressively more difficult. So if someone looks like they're a little bit off balance, you don't continue to push them to put them into danger. So I'm going to have our, um, our, uh, um, production center show this, uh, video clip for you. Now I will show you the second movement. I want you to try to stand with the side of the heel of one foot touching the big toe of the other foot for about 10 seconds. You may put either foot in front, whichever is more comfortable for you. You may use your arms or bend your knees or move your body in order to maintain your balance, but try not to move your feet. Try to hold this position until I tell you to stop. Make sure that the participant is stable and that his feet are in the correct position before you release him. Have the stopwatch ready to begin timing as soon as you release his arm. Stay close to the participant so that he can grab your arm if he loses his balance, but not so close that he can't use his arms for balance. Okay, are you ready? Yes. Ready, begin. Okay, are you okay? Yeah. All right, let's have a seat back here. Okay. 
Okay, so there's an example of someone performing the tandem stand who maybe has a little bit more difficulty. So he wouldn't have scored his second point and would have a score of 104 on his assessment. The four meter walking test for the short physical performance battery is just a short distance across a room. Um, this may actually be able to be done in a clinic room, depending on how large your clinic rooms are, or in a hallway. The important part is just that the participant can walk across the finish line and not have an obstruction or a wall in the way. Um, for all of these tests, it's important that you're not pacing the participant when you perform them. So usually the observer will stand just behind the participant or at the finish line to watch their performance. And this is done at just a usual gate speed pace, so how they would walk across the room um, or into a clinic or, or um, down the, the sidewalk. The last portion of this is the five times sit to stand or the chair rise test. And this is just done with a chair in the clinic, which is the nice thing about the short physical performance battery, really no additional uh, equipment. Ideally, it's a chair that doesn't have a, a thick cushion on it or that doesn't have arms on it. So they're not worried about hitting their elbow on the way back down. Um, and then you want to push the chair against the wall so it's not sliding out from under them. They keep their arms crossed across their chest while they're standing. And then the observers counts aloud as they stand, again, not pacing them, but allowing them to kind of set their own pace. Uh, and if you want to go ahead and show this video clip. Please stand up straight as quickly as you can five times without stopping in between. After standing up each time, sit down and then stand up again. Keep your arms folded across your chest. I'll be timing you with a stopwatch. Ready? Yes. Stand. One. Two. Can you continue? No, I can't. Okay, thank you. We'll stop the test. Okay, so he was unable to complete the whole test and wouldn't have received any points for this one. Um, the nice thing is all of these training materials are available on the NIA website. They're standardizable. Um, there's a separate video that's about 30 minutes that actually provides lots of tips and tricks. So it's a really great resource um, that's very accessible if you're interested in using this for studies or in the clinical setting. Um, so how do these performances look on a kind of middle-aged patient population? Um, well, this is an example of how this test might perform. We uh, administered the short physical performance battery test in about 250 people that were entering the reprieve trial for statins and HIV. These uh, patients have no cardiovascular risk factors, essentially, and are age 40 and older. Uh, of this 250, um, or of these 250 individuals, about 6% were frail, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. Um, but as you can see, uh, about 60% at least had some impairment in the short physical performance battery score. So only 36% had a perfect score of 12. And then we saw a range of scores kind of going from about 7 to 11 across different performance thresholds. When we looked at the specific components of the short physical performance battery that were impaired, we saw the greatest impairment in the chair rise time. Um, only about 40% or 38.3% actually had a perfect uh, chair rise test. And um, the, the majority had at least one impairment um, in terms of their time here. 
There's also a modified version of the short physical performance battery that can be very useful in higher functioning individuals to separate out that um, perfect score of 12 a bit more. This expands the balance test uh, by adding 30 seconds instead of 10 seconds for each test. And then the final part of the balance test actually adds a one leg chair stand time for 30 seconds. So while I'm um, finishing this presentation, I'd like you to all stand up and practice the one leg balance test and see if you can hold it for at least 30 seconds and we get a perfect score. Uh, the, the gate speed for this is the same. And then the last part is 10 chair rises instead of five. So really separating out those perfect chair rise times as well. The chair rise can also just be used on its own as a, um, a continuous measure, which can be helpful. Uh, I mentioned a couple of other tests on the um, initial chart, and I, I will mention that there's hundreds of options for assessing physical function. These are some of the most commonly uh, mentioned that I used here. This website, the Geriatric Toolkit, also has a lot of other links to different tests. The 400-meter walk test is a little bit more of an endurance test, so it's pushing people to walk a quarter of a mile instead of just that four meters. It, you don't need a, a track to, to do the lap. Um, it can be done on a shorter 25-meter or 50-meter course and just repeated. Um, and it, it, you're going to have a range of values on this from anywhere from about four minutes or 240 seconds up to up to 15 minutes or more or 900 seconds. So you can see that there's a huge range in these values. The time to up and go is commonly used in the clinical setting, particularly for identifying people at um, a high fall risk. And you can see this is um, referenced frequently on the CDC through their study program to decrease falls. It involves having a patient stand up from a chair, walk across the room, turn around, come back and sit back down. And it's a little bit more subjective. So the observer is looking for how the participant or the patient is doing in terms of their pacing, how comfortable they look with the balance, how quickly they turn around, whether their arms swing. So probably not as useful in a clinical setting where we need things or in a, um, a clinical trial setting where we need more objective markers, but certainly quite useful in the clinical setting. OK, I'd like to shift now to talk about a few of the tools that we use for frailty. The frailty phenotype is probably one of the most frequently um, common or frequently referenced frailty assessments. Um, but I'd also like to talk a little bit about the frail scale and the frailty index index or uh, a similar concept as the VAX index. So the frailty phenotype was first described by Linda Freed and colleagues, so sometimes referred to as the Freed frailty phenotype. And it includes five components of slow gait, weak grip, low activity, exhaustion, and unintentional weight loss. If someone has no um, no impairment in any of these categories, they're considered robust or non-frail. If they have one or two impairments, they're considered pre-frail. And if they have three or more, they're considered frail. The original reference for the frailty phenotype um, uses a walk time that's stratified by gender and height. And then there's specific cutoffs that were based on the 20th, the lower 20 percentile, 20th percentile of performance in this large geriatric cohort where the test was first established. The walk speed for this or the walk um, distance for this is 4.57 meters. So just a little bit different than the short physical performance battery. And then the grip strength is done using a handheld dynamometer with um, specific cutoffs based on gender and um, uh, weight or BMI. Um, part of the issue with this is that different studies will use a different cutoff point. Some studies will use the same um, cohort and reference that was that I show here. Other studies will use the lower 20th percentile performance of their cohort. For example, the MAX uses the lower 20th of the HIV 
uninfected controls in their study population. And other, co- other cohorts use the lower 20th of the younger group or the lower 20th of the younger HIV uninfected. So these cut points can change depending on what um, study or what uh, clinic population you're looking at. Um, the exhaustion component of this uh, originally was measured using the CESD depression scale, and someone answers how often they felt that everything they did was an effort or they could not get going. You can see this certainly has a lot of overlap with depressive symptoms, which can, is one criticism of the frailty phenotype. Um, and this is often uh, used as this exact measure, but some studies do change their component of fatigue or of exhaustion. And then physical activity for the original frailty phenotype was measured using a short version of the Minnesota Leisure Time Activity Questionnaire, which is extremely difficult questionnaire to try to track down on paper and requires usually going to a library to dig out a supplement for an article um, that was only printed in paper. So this oftentimes is substituted um, in a a lot of the HIV studies that substituted for response on one of the um, short form 36 questions on limitations and activity. Um, some studies or clinic populations plug in just a, a physical activity questionnaire or other assessments for that. Um, so because of these different cut points that I measured, oftentimes the frailty prevalence differs pretty considerably between different studies. Um, in part, it's certainly due to different characteristics of the population. Some studies are looking at 30-year-olds. Some studies are looking at 70-year-olds. Some include people on all on antiretroviral therapy, and some are people all not on antiretroviral therapy. But certainly these cut points um, play a big issue in trying to compare frailty from uh, between different patient populations. Now, if you're just trying to use it to identify at-risk patients in your clinic, I think it can be very useful. Um, but if we're trying to compare between different studies, it's nice to know that we're using the same definition when comparing um, people between different studies. The clinical frail scale um, has actually, or clinical frailty scale has actually had a bit more publicity in the last year as it was used um, um, some for COVID. And uh, when it, the British healthcare system or the um, the um, national health system used this as one of the ways to prioritize care in identifying um, who should receive specific COVID treatments. It was actually just modified this past year. So this is slightly different than the older version. Um, but it was developed as a quick screen that can be done by the provider or a caregiver. And it's kind of the eyeball test to say, how frail does someone look? So you essentially find the category that seems to fit best with how an individual is performing. It does overlap a little bit with some concepts of disability, a bit more than than other frailty measures. But if you take, for example, someone who's managing well, they would get a three on the frailty scale. Their medical problems are well controlled. They're often not regularly active, but they're not necessarily frail. And oftentimes these one, two, th- one, two, and three are kind of considered the um, more robust or pre-frail. And then when we get into the higher numbers, that gets a little bit more into the frailty. And the last thing I want to mention is the frailty index. So this is um, a bit different than the frailty phenotype that's really describing kind of that physical um, and uh, that vulnerability that you can imagine. And this is a bit more of just how many things wrong does someone have? How many deficits have they accumulated with the overall concept that the more things someone has wrong, the more likely it is that they're frail. This index is unique for each different setting, and it's actually developed using um, a specific criteria for what variables are included. Those variables have to increase with age, but not be ubiquitous with age. For example, age itself is not included as a criteria. 
presbyopia um, that happens in almost everyone with aging is is not included as a criteria. Um, and those criteria also have to be associated with um, health status. Uh, generally, um, Rockwood, who developed this index, recommends that at least 50 variables are included for best performance, although some more recent versions of this have included um, far fewer variables, such as 20 different variables. Uh, the index can be developed using chart review, labs, electronic medical um, record data, and it can be collected retrospectively, which certainly can be a benefit of using this index. The actual value is expressed as a ratio of using the number of variables impaired over the number of variables that are assessed. And if something in that uh, setting isn't available, then it's just subtracted from the denominator. The original Rockwood uh, Frailty Index included this extensive list of different variables. And you can see there's a lot of overlap and a lot of neurologic and cognition variables that went into this initial scale. So um, things like seizures, seizures, depending on where the seizures are, um, lots of memory impairments and cognitive symptoms. Uh, this has been um, changed over the years. This one's primarily based on symptoms and diagnoses. Giovanni Giraldi's group out of Italy developed a similar frailty index in their um, Modena metabolic clinic using um, or specific for HIV that includes some HIV variables and then some additional variables that they assess that aren't readily necessarily available in the U.S. in the clinical setting, such as visceral adipose tissue and measures of sarcopenia by DEXA, um, as well as coronary artery calcium scores. But you can see this one's a lot more lab based. So these can differ quite a bit. The general idea just is finding things that are wrong and having this ratio of variables that are impaired. Um, a somewhat similar concept is this uh, Veterans Aging Cohort Study Index that was developed um, specifically for people with HIV. It includes far less variables, all readily available within the, the lab. But this index has also um, been quite useful in identifying those that are at high risk of mortality, both with and without HIV in the veterans aging cohort um, and beyond. So in summary, um, physical limit or functional limitations and frailty occur more occur earlier and more often in people with HIV. There's lots of different tools available that are really dependent on the goal of your assessment what setting you're in, what equipment you have available, and um, the amount of personnel time you have available. Um, but as a big take-home, I think that this assessment of function and frailty can really help with identifying at-risk patients prioritized for early interventions as we're treating an increasingly older population of people with HIV. I'd like to thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to the rest of the conference. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Erlinson, for that fantastic uh, discussion and overview of all the different measures we can use to assess frailty in our patients. I'm going to start off with a question from the audience, and then I have a few questions of my own if we don't have more from our participants. Um, first question is, who can perform the frailty assessments? Is there a specific training that needs to occur, and does it have to be a medical provider, or can it be a nurse or other non-provider doing the assessment? That's a great question. Um, it can certainly be a nurse or a non-provider that performs the assessment. There's um, um, spe some specific guidelines. Frailty probably has a little bit less um, specific training as long as you're including all of those components. But we use these for a few large studies and almost always have nurses administer for these studies. 
um, in the clinical setting, I think this is a great way to um, kind of uh, break up the care or um, break up how patients are triaged and have a frailty assessment as someone's checked into the clinic as part of their vital signs. And then that information is available to the provider when they're kind of having that discussion with the patient. So definitely does not have to be the medical provider that does that. Great. Thank you. Um, Dr. Davey has a question about short physical performance battery. If someone uses an aid for ambulation, like a cane or walker, is that battery still applicable? Um, most of the time, yes. I think some, it, it kind of depends on the setting. Um, oftentimes, it's just a matter of recording that a device was used. I think if you're in a setting where um perhaps you're trying to do some of these assessments over the phone or over video, not necessarily recommended, but I think something that's come up in the era of telehealth um, and someone needs a, a, a device for it. I don't know that I would feel comfortable doing it in that patient, just knowing that they were potentially at higher risk of falling during the assessment, but the short physical performance battery instructions do include instructions for whether or not a patient has a device with the, with the assessments. If they're able to perform it without the device, I think that probably gives you a little bit better answer, but, um, but yes, they, they still can be done. Great. Thank you. Um, Jeff Kapler has a question about um, are patients sometimes offended by suggesting that they be screened for frailty and how do you approach them to avoid that issue? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I think if we're um, some of these other more objective markers, such as the short physical performance battery, chair rise or the 400 meter walk have a little bit more of a let's see how um, fit you are in uh, kind of. Um, uh, impression to them rather than frail, which I think people say I'm being screened for, screened for frailty, and they certainly might think that they're more on the frail side. So if you're assessing kind of how rapidly someone can stand up from the chair 10 times, um, they see it as as a more of a positive thing, like I can stand up this quickly um, this year. Let's see if I can get faster next year. So in some ways, I think those um, actually maybe may go over better by patients than some of these frailty assessments where they think that they're um, uh, where it's implied that they're frail if you're asking if you can do it. Um, the other thing is just it's part of a yearly screening. So you work it in and say, we're going to do this assessment once a year just to see if anyone is frail that so, so that we can offer additional resources. If it's standardized in your clinic and it's done once a year or every two years or as some sort of yearly assessment, then it's less that that particular person's being selected out to do the assessment and more just something that happens routinely. And I, I guess this is probably an obvious question, but a lot of older people have underlying conditions like osteoarthritis that may impact their ability to do some of these things, but don't necessarily indicate that they're frail or not fit. Or how do you, uh, how do you sort of account for that in mm -hmm. some of these tests? Um, I mean, the, certainly the grip strength within the, um, the frailty assessment, uh, a lot of patients will have difficulty with that if they have thumb arthritis or arthritis in their hands. Um, and that's one of the points. I mean, there's, there's two other points they need to hit before they become frail. So it, it certainly is accounted. Um, and I think that actually may be part of frailty. If someone has a lot of arthritis and they're unable to walk as much, they certainly may be at higher risk of poor outcomes over time because of their arthritis and their pain that limits their activity. So I think we, in the context of aging, we kind of think about all these things such as arthritis that may 
um, a person might not feel frail, but perhaps they are at higher risk of poor outcomes and frailty if they're not able to overcome some of those limitations in their activity because of their arthritis. Great. And then another question, how feasible is it to apply the frailty index in a clinical setting? Have you used it in your own clinical practice? So we um, are in the process within the geriatric department, not within the HIV clinic, but in our geriatric department to develop a frailty index using electronic medical record data. Um, It definitely takes some time to set it up. I think once it's established in your system, if you can automate it, pulling in certain variables that can be used um, as an assessment of frailty, you decide the important components that you can include, it's probably quite easy to implement it. And it might pop up as a quick um, reminder when you see a patient, their frailty index has increased or their frailty index has changed since their prior visit a year ago. So I think it can be very useful if you can put the time in to get it set up initially. Uh, the VAX index or the Veterans Aging Cohort Study Index is probably much easier to set up as it has that specific list of variables that have been included, um, all of almost all of which are assessed routinely in the clinical setting. Uh, it's a little bit different concept than that frailty phenotype, but it can be a quick way to say um, to to identify someone who maybe has had a progression in their um, VAX index score since the year prior and make sure that their comorbidities are being addressed and you're doing what you can to minimize other risk factors for progression. Great. And then how does uh, antiretroviral therapy fit into your assessment? Have you noticed in using these tools, are people who are fully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy different from people who are not? Have you taken into account those factors for people with HIV? Yeah, certainly some of the earlier data from the multi-center AIDS cohort study looked at individuals who were not on therapy um, and then those that are on therapy. And that was was from um, probably 10 years ago. But those that were not on antiretroviral therapy had markedly higher um, frailty compared to those on therapy. Within different regimens, um, we did look at this in one of the larger cohorts within the AIDS clinical trials group. And we saw that people who were initially randomized to efavirenz-based regimens had slightly higher frailty. Um, not all of them were still on those regimens, so we're not sure if it was a bias and what um, medication they were or were not on or if that, there were other factors involved there. But we did see a slightly higher risk with efavirenz-based medications. We have really not seen a lot of um, associations with specific antiretrovirals uh, necessarily since then, um, but definitely that... Um, uh, difference between being on antiretroviral therapy or not is one of the biggest risk factors for frailty. Great. Um, um, I think we have time for maybe one last question. Um, are improvements considered upscaling? For example, you've improved from month to month or year to year. Are you no longer pre-frail or frail? Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's a very positive thing to be able to offer a patient as you've improved your gait speeds faster, your grip strengths better, um, your exhaustion's better. I think that is considered improvement. Uh, with that in mind, there is a lot of fluctuation between visits. In some studies that have looked at how frailty changes over time, there's a lot of moving back and forth between non-frail, pre-frail, frail, um, in progressing, or, um, improving, worsening, improving, worsening. So we do see some fluctuation, but I think for a patient who maybe is working on increasing their exercise, being able to give them that feedback of year no longer pre-frail is, is great feedback and um, hopefully can help enforce their healthy behaviors. 
Great. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Erlinson for that very elegant and instructive talk this morning. And if you have additional questions related to her discussion, we'll try and get to those in our panel discussion after our session. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Volberding to introduce our next speaker.